Hi, I'm Jamie, and I am the creator of One World, Your Story, where we bring people together. And right now, we need this more than ever. The murder of George Floyd, the latest of countless Black Americans to be murdered at the hands of police in America, has set off a chain reaction across the United States. People are angry, people are hurt, and rightfully so. We cannot stand by and allow this to continue any longer. It's time to use our voices and bring this conversation out into the open for good. So join us for this episode of The Floyd Files. Here in the U.S., my proximity to Blackness is always questioned. Okay, so everyone that's tuning in, we are about to get started. I am thrilled to be continuing speaking to Luna. We had a conversation earlier today getting to know each other a little bit, and we had a hard time getting off the phone. So I can only imagine what we're going to talk about now. Um, Luna, whenever you tell me that you started the watch party, we'll go ahead and jump in. Okay, I don't know if I'm on the watch party. <laughs> Hang on. Sam, I started a watch party. I, I'm on the phone right now with her. Listen, you guys. I, 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 oh, I think you've got it. We've got more people tuning in now. Okay, I got to hang up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to get started. <laughs> okay, so we are a go. So um, my name is Jamie from One World, Your Voice, and I am here with Luna. Um, Luna is a contemplative scholar, activist, um, a wonderfully beautiful, interesting person from what I know so far, um, and just wrapped up her master's program two weeks ago and will be embarking on a PhD program in the fall Um and going to be studying anthropology and social change. And I mean, what a time to wrap up the three-year program that you were telling me about, Luna. But before we jump into all of that, and and the first thing that we're going to talk about is, as you said, what the fuck is even going on right now in the world? Um, and we're going to do a little dive into that. But before we do, like, I, I would love to talk about your name really quickly, um, because... I said, okay, is it Christine or is it Luna? And, and it's just Luna now. Um, but it took you a couple of years, more than a couple of years, <laughs> to start referring to yourself that way. So I would love for you to introduce yourself and your name and, and tell us how you got to be where you are. Thank you. Um, and so, so uh, uh, appreciative for your inviting me into your platform to have this dialogue. It is very needed right now for uh, people to come together, right? And to start engaging in genuine, authentic dialogue with each other from different cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which we're gonna unpack. So my birth name is Christine de la Luna. And for those who don't speak Spanish, de la Luna means of the moon. And so I actually adopted the name Luna, which is part of my surname, when a community member in a former yogic uh, studio that I was a member of naturally had an affinity to refer to me as Luna. And the interesting thing was, long story short, was is that I didn't feel comfort in, in actually 
claiming that, even though that is my ethnic heritage name. And I've been, that was my groaning at growing edge. And the growing edge was, it sounded so ethnic. Yes. And I was, I have been so um, perfectly mastered and in assimilating into white culture that uh, it was already, it was already uncomfortable uh, when I would share my last name. So over the years, I just basically started to live into this growing edge. And then it's an act of basically reclamation of my ethnic identity. And, um, and I actually prefer going by just one moniker, you know, uh, it, it kind of fries the imagination as far as who are you and where you're from and, you know, what is, if you don't know Spanish, what is a Luna? And, you know, and I've had some pretty derogatory comments on Facebook. You know, you, may, you know, imagine what you can do with the word Luna. If, if I'm posting something that is, that's left-leaning within a diverse uh, Facebook uh, uh, column and someone that is right-leaning and is, a, is in opposition to my views, um, and uh, has extreme positionality, you can only imagine some of the things that they have taken with the derivative Luna. So, wow. yeah, but, and all that's, I, I've, I've transcended that. And so, yeah, Luna. So. I mean, and, and good for you. I'm like, I'm so happy for you. And yeah, you're right. When you walk around with a name, like Luna, by the way, Bella Luna, in my opinion, I think it's beautiful. Um, you are kind of uh, opening the door for somebody to be like, that's a beautiful name. Like, where does that come from? Um, my little brother, his name is Lyle. And I don't know if there's ever been a time when I said his name and people don't say what, where does that come from? I mean, it's impossible not to. And, and I, I imagine that that can be exhausting. Um, well, and many other things. And it's interesting because if you name your dog Luna or you name your dog Buddha, no one questions it. Right? Yeah. So, but that's another conversation <laughs> so, to unpack. Totally. Okay. Well, let's just get into it. So, yeah. I mean, from your perspective, from the learning and unpacking that you just went through over the last couple of years in your schooling, I mean, it was the first thing you said you wanted to talk about is actually what is going on right now. So, I'll, yeah, from your perspective, Luna, what the fuck is happening right now? So here's the thing. I, I, I need a disclaimer. So I don't speak on behalf of all Latinx people. I don't speak on behalf of all Asian Pacific Islander people. I don't speak on behalf of the Black community. And I don't speak in behalf of all the female body community. Um, and these are part of my identities. Um, I'm speaking from my lived experience and I'm speaking from a perspective of having been engaged on the ground in activism, uh, praxis, practical engagement with communities as well as attempting to deconstruct all this from an academic perspective understand it theoretically, historically. And so what I've come to the, to the realization is that we're at an incredibly powerful yet dangerous time in this country, particularly 
specific to the social contract. And within the social contract of our democracy is also the racialized aspect of being in contract with each other and with the institutions that supposedly govern us. And what's before us is this huge social project to deconstruct and dismantle and reconstruct this us versus them consciousness. That's the simple answer. And we have a little more time, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, okay, well, what should we dig into first? The cross-sectionality that you were referring to in the beginning of your lived experience, by the way, and and how that cross-sectionality impacts all of the systems, which is the social project that you're talking about. We need to deconstruct and reconstruct. Um, or, or should we dig into us versus them and where that all began? I mean, you tell me. So I think what would be of greatest service based on the present moment and the tensions and the emotions and the um, trauma that is before us, there's value in having a dialogue about white supremacy, anti-blackness, and what that means and how it's influenced where we are. And then we can organically allow it to unfold from there. You just said a phrase that I'm not familiar with, actually, um, which is anti-blackness. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Depending on what part of the country you're in, it's a well-understood aspect within the duality of white supremacy and blackness. Because there is no white supremacy without anti-blackness. They, exi- they coexist together. And, it, and, and it's, it doesn't matter if you identify as white or black or Asian or Afro-Latina or um, Afro-Caribbean, they go hand in hand. Um, but before we get further, because this is not a teaching, okay? This is not a teaching. No. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is a dialogue, a conversation between you and I, and we clearly oh. come from different social locations, right? So unless, if you have another question to segue us, I'll, I'll follow that prompt. And if you don't, then I'll segue us with a question. I mean, I am totally curious about the concept of anti-Blackness and I don't necessarily want it to go down like a teaching moment. I just think it's interesting because I've never heard that before to think like, and I feel like it, it relates to the concept of like, you can't have love without hate. Like, how could you have white supremacy without anti-Blackness? But like, how would... Anyway, if you don't want to go down that route, we can totally choose. We can go down that route, but I'm, I'm going to be cognizant of not taking on the emotional labor. Mm. So, so if you're game with me to, to open up maybe slightly Pandora's box, it, it'll be a growing edge for both of us. It's just that I'm seasoned enough to know what my boundaries are so that I don't 
exhaust myself in attempting to educate the white imagination. I'm like, I don't even know. I mean, cause I so hear you. Um, and in doing my work on my own white fragility, right. And trying to get comfortable bringing these conversations out into the open and talking about them and knowing where the limits and boundaries are. I'm like, I, I want to be respectful of that. And I also want to push our limits. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Well, we had a great preliminary conversation. So yeah. uh, I feel we can go there. And if I don't, because I have dialogic method training, mediation training, you know, I can redirect it if needed. Okay. If it just seems that, you know, we're getting, we're getting beyond our growth edge. Yeah. Let's so, do it. If you trust me to do that, I trust myself. I trust you. Like, yeah. so, I, I say, let's go for it. Okay. So, th so then I and would, thank you. Yeah. So my response, my next response is going to be a question to establish the trust factor. Yes. I, okay. Because I don't know that I can trust you. So we're being, we're being real and we're modeling real conversation for yeah. whoever's viewing. Okay. So what I need to ask you and what I need to hear from you, Jamie, is what is your understanding and ex lived experience with white supremacy? And you kind of gave me an insight about the other counterpart. And what is your understanding experience with anti-blackness? You as Jamie, not you as a white woman with a white community, you as Jamie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is my experience with, oh man, I'm so glad that Sam introduced us. This is, yeah, going to push edges. Let's do it. Okay. So I am second generation, I guess, um, on my father's side um, and both sides, like I'm a hundred percent Jewish. Oh. And I think that I learned from an early age what it meant to be in an oppressed group um, because of being Jewish. I also identify as queer. Um, and I've also been a person that has gotten along with every person, every group, like I blend groups together. Um, and have been always very curious about people, just a genuine curiosity of like, who are you? Like, what's your story? I want to know about you. Um, it's part of why I do this kind of thing. And I also, I've been really struck with the fact that, you know, I went to boarding school. Um, I had the privilege to do that. I went to a private university. I had the privilege to do that. And I don't have student loans right now. Um, and I've been, I, I think, put myself in a position where my, the people in my community, my friends feel comfortable calling me out. Um, so I've definitely been called out on my privilege. So my experience of it personally is, and the, 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 the school that I went to, I studied sociology. Um, so put myself in classes where I learned and educated myself and had discussions. Um, my brother is married to a gal from Peru. Um, and we've done the work of she is a citizen and we, like her family is living here and just thinking about that impact and seeing like my family's reaction to certain things and events that we have. And my cousin's about to marry 
um, somebody who is half El Salvadorian, half Guatemalan, and I speak Spanish, but like seeing my family and their family interact at like the bridal show, I just, those are the moments where I'm like smacked in the face with whiteness and privilege. So, okay, that's really abstract. So can you help me out? So what smacked you in the face? What about that smacked you in the face? It's like this uncomfortable attempt to go out of their way to be like extra nice almost. And then I'm sitting there like just be normal, like act like yourself, just like you would be meeting anybody else. So to me, that's when I'm just like, it's so uncomfortable. And I try to, I don't know what to do in those situations, I guess. So that's your experience of white supremacy? No, that is one, one example of it. I also worked in diversity and inclusion for a while um, very recently, and the company was run by two white women. And the the in my opinion, there was a lot of like capitalizing on what feels like a hot topic. Um, and that felt weird um, and definitely was an interesting experience of white supremacy. Um, and I, I don't work there anymore. Um, and I'm, a, I tend to be a martyr um, and try to like speak up about these things and I'm not, I'm no longer there. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm having a hard time answering that question. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I know I've experienced it. I know I play into it. I live in the systems of it every single, I guess I experience it every single day is a, is the answer. Yeah. It is a part of my life every day. So you already rawly shared about your newness to the reality of anti-blackness. So I don't want to cause you further pain by asking you to come up with an example of how you have experienced anti-blackness. Um, I want to though qualify for you and clarify for whoever's viewing, like, why did I just do this? I did this because I need to see if it's safe for me to continue on in the dialogue with you. It, so, fuck. I'm like embarrassed. I don't want to cry. Yeah. You're not responsible for my feelings. I don't want you to own any of this. I literally just learned about this. So I'm like, in no way, what shape or form am I putting that on you? So please, like, yeah. Yo, and, and, and so now we can just segue because now I can then respond to what has been my lived experience with white supremacy and what has been my lived experience with anti-blackness. And, and I have to be really mindful because, um, again, the black community is not a monolithic structure where there's a universalized representation. There is Afro-Caribbean, there is Af Afro-Latino, uh, Latina, there's the African diaspora, there's Pan-African, there's African-American. And the same thing occurs within, as you know, since you speak Spanish, you obviously have traveled you know, with, throughout Latin America. 
it, it'd be no different of saying that we're Mexicanos are the same, are no different from Venezuelans, are no different from Argentinians or Chileans, et cetera, right? Just the same thing with your Jewish culture. There are Ashkenazi Jews, there are Sephardic Jews, right? It's the same with being queer or being exactly. gay. I mean, there's no exactly. one spokesperson for any group of people, I don't yeah. think. And, and so here's the thing. What I've experienced regarding white supremacy and anti-Blackness doesn't has, has, doesn't come close to what my sisters who have undergone extreme terror and structural violence from the state specific to their brothers, fathers, uncles, experiencing the knee in the neck and being suffocated, okay? Because there's a whole nother nuanced level of my experience navigating through this white supremacist constructed reality as a woman of color who's less melanin challenged and can pass with an ambiguous identity. People would never can figure me out. And then the minute I open my mouth, if I want to speak Spanish and I'm traveling through Latin America, occasionally I'll be, I'll be asked, like, what are you? But my proximity to blackness is never questioned. Here in the US, my proximity to blackness is always questioned. And that's part of how we operate within this white supremacist capitalist patriarchal system, okay? Which I know is a pretty lofty term that I'm using. Um, so, I have the privilege to walk away and um, cloak myself if need be. God, I know that feeling. Yeah. Not and, in the same way. No, not in the same way, but it, it's in terms of what's happening. Um, now, I know the privilege of being able to pass, like well, to, yeah. to not have to like feel the, the same oppression. You know, like as a as a femme queer person that can definitely present as completely normative. And by the way, somebody that I can I could join a Ku Klux Klan as a Jewish person, because if I don't say it, you're not going to know it. Right. Exactly. Um, I would never have known you were Jewish if you hadn't shared that with me. And the minute you shared that with me and then you shared with me you're queer, I exhaled. Mm. And why, did, why did I exhale? Because I said, Okay, she understands at the very least some degree of oppression. Some. <laughs> well, and I, I also, but I also understand like the, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, this feeling of like a guilt that I can put that cloak on and also being like, no, like you do need to know who I am because it's not fair that I get that pass. It's a weird, I don't know. It's a weird feeling. Well, and that's why that's why people are taken to the streets right now, because they're demanding equity. They're demanding a more egalitarian social contract that they're entitled to as citizens. And that's a that's even a touchy subject, because if you're a legal resident, if you're an immigrant, you know, and your status is, in, is being held in limbo, suspended. If you're a DACA uh, recipient, um, there are many who would 
would argue that, well, that right there was a microaggression saying, oh, well, I can pass and I have some degree of understanding. Um, and as long as, and that in itself is a privilege, right? To be able to pass. But at the end of the day, we're, we're, where I'm at right now, I don't give a shit about passing anymore. If anything, hence adopting my name, Luna, um, and if anything, Amen. I'm utilizing my privilege moving through academe to disrupt consciousness. Yes. Okay. And I have disrupted it and I have received white lash and backlash because all of these institutions in our country are rooted in white supremacy. And I brought up the term anti-blackness in a community forum just last quarter. Um, my second to the last quarter, and you wouldn't believe the pushback I received. And from a black administrator, female administrator. And, and the pushback was, we can't go there right now. We're gonna do diversity and inclusion trainings specific to white supremacy, but we'll get to that. And I said to her, okay, here's the reality though. One doesn't exist without the other. And I said, so can you clarify for me in our community? What does this really mean at the institutional level? You wanna move incrementally? You wanna move one step at a time? Is that what you're saying? That the institution's position is, we can't deal with that right now, anti-blackness. We, we're still trying to figure out white supremacy as white supremacists. And I said, is that the institution's position? And she says, well, I'm not speaking for the institution as she looked to the president of the institution who nodded his head. She says, I'm speaking for myself. And I said, well, if you're speaking for yourself as a woman of color and I'm speaking for myself as a woman of color and we're not, we're not dialoguing intention because you don't wanna address anti-blackness because you think that's an afterthought to white supremacy, then we got problems in this institution. And well, then, it's like what we were talking about earlier, the, the program or the, is, was it the, uh, the ILIF, is it the ILIF school that had the, uh, the head of the indigenous yeah. leader? Yeah. So just to fill in the audience, another complicated example of white supremacists, capitalist patriarchy, the institution I just graduated from was established in Denver back in um, the late, or excuse me, early 19th century. It's been in existence for like a hundred some odd years. And they had on display for decades, a Bible, a holy book. And the covering of the book was bound with the scalp and hair of a Native American Lenape indigenous elder. And that was put on display as part of the Euro Christian project. And nobody- Until when? An, until a, a couple years ago. And there was a Native American scholar who was on faculty for decades and it took him decades to have it removed. It's just like the, there's this desire, I think, inherently to want to do something 
to I think that humans like we know, okay, a change has to happen. But how, like, how can I really do it? What do I really do with the systems and reform, reform, right? It's like, okay, we'll make like little tweaks here and there, but there is so much blindness. I mean, here I am thinking I'm like making progress in the work and you ask me a simple question. What's your experience with white supremacy? And I cannot answer it. I'm like, uh, like there's just still so much unraveling. Um, and Sam asked a question. I think we can go into the, by the way, anyone that's watching live, please, if you have a question or a comment, type them in the chat. I'm watching them. But Sam wants to know, how do we move from conversation to an action, which I think maybe you could go with like, well, we can't do reform. What kind of action do we really need right now? What do we need to be? And, and I think it kind of has to start with conversation. I don't even know if we're having really the ones we need to be having yet, but I don't know. You tell me, Luna. Well, we had, we were touching, we were starting to unpack this in our preliminary conversation. So I have been following some of the most brilliant black thought leaders in this country who have been sitting and coming together online and forums. The Angela Davises, the Charles Blow of New York Times, Kimberly Crenshaw of the African American um, Forum, um, to name a few, um, uh, Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, and here's the thing, and the person I go to and I follow closely who sits on the advisory council of my PhD program is Angela Davis, because she has been 50 years, both on the ground and globally. And she has experienced the bestiality of this white supremacist system in this country. And one of the things she says in the movie, The 13th by Ava DuVernay, which you have to watch that three and four and five times because it is just an incredibly powerful educational piece. She mentions the fact that whenever there has been reform historically, repression, extreme repression has always followed because the institutions that are designed to do exactly what they're doing right now understand the design. So if you try to reform it, they know how to tweak it. So what does that mean in just basic parlance? That means that reform doesn't work. It's about prison abolition. It's about defunding, but defunding to then refund different types of institutions like social work. Mental would health. Say, would you say that the word institution can be synonymous with system? Institutions based, there, there, there's, okay, so we have political institutions, legal institutions, educational institutions, medical institutions, just as a, a, an example. And within those institutions, you have systems managers. Okay, because the reason I ask is like, I mean, the whole idea of a system is that it never stops. It just goes around and around. That's why I'm like, well, should we call them, you know, the, inst the education institution, like system, in my opinion? Because, and for that, I say that because I'm like, that's why we keep reforming it because it's got to somehow stay within the same 
cyclical thing. The thing is, that's a semantic movement. And a semantical moves don't don't move the dial. No, I'm not saying that that would fix anything. I'm just saying I think we need to start thinking about it in that way to really get why it needs to change so much. I mean, you know who was a who was, and again, he's European. I know that there are others. Well, Paulo Fieri. I'll, I'll use Paulo Fieri. I won't use a European example. Paulo Fieri out of Brazil. He has an amazing book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. This was to turn educational institutions on their ear and how to reframe, restructure pedagogy, which is teaching. Okay, it's a liberative model. It's a liberative model. So essentially what I'm saying is there has, what all the thought leaders are saying, and in my time on the planet, having been a young baby boomer, we were talking about the intergenerational uh, differences between you and I, overhaul is what is called for right now. Because if we continue forward with reform, your grandchildren, if you decide to have children, are going to be having the same conversation we're doing right now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. And that's one thing that's really clear and what is being shared among these black thought leaders is that Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, he's calling a political Pentecost because we just had Pentecost, okay? And it's a safe, if you're, if you're, not rooted in religiosity, but spirituality. This is a sacred revolution, okay? It is a revolution, it is an uprising, but here's another nuanced perspective. Depending on who you talk to and their social location and their social identities, you have to ask them what their view is. Is this a riot? Is this a protest? Is this a demonstration? Or is it an uprising? Is it a revolution? Maybe it's all the above. Well, gosh, I mean, I'm so curious to know what you would call it, especially because you told me you studied multiple different ways of a peaceful, I don't, you did not call it a peaceful protest. You called it, what did you call it? What was the, why can't I think of the statement right now, Luna? So, Here's the thing, though. Understand something about not because I, you know, have training in nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication. Yes. Yeah. Nonviolence doesn't mean that you don't get angry. Nonviolent communication doesn't mean that you yes. don't feel passion. Nonviolence does not mean that you don't have the fire in your belly. Yeah. Okay. MLK had fire in his belly and he had fire in his heart, as did many other women of color activists, as well as white comrades. So that's the other thing. I mean, I honest, honestly, um, I'm looking at some of my notes. To me, this is a sacred revolution. And it's also a sacred revolution for human dignity. Mm. Because one of the three words within the, the term that I use, which is, is, is uh, based on bell hooks, White supremacist, capitalist, mm-hmm. patriarchy. Capitalism is a beast. And it's all about exploitation of labor. And particularly, labor of the other. I was just about to say, that's the otherness. That is the otherness. Yes. And it's happening globally. 
you know, if I really, I'm confronted with this. If I'm really going to take my stand, then do, do I buy this instrument that is exploiting labor when it's been manufactured, part of its processing in China, that is one of the, the worst human rights violators? I have reached a point of my clothing where I'm not engaging, and I stopped this five years ago, of this primitive accumulation of goods. And then if I do buy clothing because I absolutely need it, because I have plenty, I buy local or I buy sustainable. But you know, in, in the retail fashion industry, you have fast fashion. What is fast fashion? Fast fashion is you go down to Bangladesh on the other side of the planet and people are getting paid less than a dollar a day. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. I mean, and speaking by the way of like shopping and consumerism and capitalism, I was watching, I, uh, what's his name? Mad Mike. Um, anyway, Tyson? This, this guy was talking about how he wanted to spend three days shopping only black, consuming only black. So like the food that he got had to come from a black farm, right? Even at the restaurant or the clothes that he was wearing or the car. I mean, he literally could not drive a car because there was not one car that he could buy. It was like made black. He was walking everywhere, riding the bus from a black bus company. I think he went over 24 hours though at first without eating. And I'm like, whoa. I mean, and you think about the dollar and staying within the community and where does it go and how many rounds does it make within the community and how does that perpetuate things? I mean, and then you think about the shopping like you're talking about. Well, I mean, I mean, and there's a reason for that. I mean, the critique, another important critique is, okay, so sure, is part of the movement right now boycotting Home Depot, who's funding 45's political campaign when um, Lowe's, is funding black businesses and offering now um, scholarships to HBCUs, historically black uh, colleges and universities. Yes, yes, the power of the dollar. The other thing is there's a history, again, of institutions, financial institutions, legal institutions, destroying black wealth, destroying any opportunity for indigenous wealth on the reservations. Okay, so yes, is that an answer to Sam's question from my perspective, my lived experience, from the amount of years I've been on the planet, alive, surviving and thriving? Yeah, you better, you better be supporting black, indigenous, people of color, businesses. And then you're gonna realize what you just said. Um, you know what? I have to really, really be mindful and hunt them down because they're not, every other storefront there's a Not reason for that there's a reason for that but there but you have to start somewhere yep you have to start somewhere and covid-19 that's the weird silver lining blessing is that it has caused us to become so introspective from having to quarantine and to shelter in place so that when we get out there we have to be intentional Okay, before we get into the introspective and being intentional, because like you mentioned, a Buddhist practice and a meditation practice, and there's some questions I for sure want to ask you about that. There was a question that came in um, from Harry, um, and he says, 
Well, what does overhaul look like? So we got to backtrack a little bit to go back to the action yeah, and yeah. the reform and the deconstruction, yeah. reconstruction. Then we can dive into the other part. Yeah. So, so said, that- yeah, I know we're talking a lot about defunding the police right now, for example, but it sounds like you're talking about a much larger change, which, yeah, because it can't just be one system, right? Well, I, I'm talking, I'm following the guidance of elders that are still alive on the planet that have that were around during the dawn of the civil rights era. Okay? These are the these are the people who made it possible for me to navigate and negotiate my space and place in the ivory tower. They're the reason why I can even get into a PhD program. These are the Angelo Davises. These are the, these are the John Powells of the other in belonging institute out of UC Berkeley. These are the Reverend William Barbers. Uh, but in answer it's to the crazy question- that you say that and like that they're the ones that made that change and still alive teaching you. I mean, it's not that long ago is the point. I mean, it's crazy. No, and Angela Davis, 76 years old. Okay, so here's the thing about the Albuquerque because I don't want to overlook what Harry's saying. This is the defining moment. It's an invitation for black indigenous people of color to come together in communities together with their white comrades and ask that question. What does overhaul look like? What does reimagining, re-envisioning these structures look like? And then the white progressive community, which is the movable middle, They need to go sit amongst themselves, figure out who they are, specific to anti-Blackness, Black Lives Matters, Brown Lives Matters, Immigrant Lives Matters, Queer Lives, LGBTQI Lives Matters, like figure that out, like go, you know, go be with your people and figure it out, find out, and then start unpacking that question because Angela Davis said, and she's been saying this, we need to reinvigorate our imaginations because what's happened is we went from utopian to dystopian. Okay, we are trying living, to believe that it is a utopia. And the reality which I think is, is what's causing us to want to go back to that, but well, it wasn't. Is, so the thing is, I've, I've traveled throughout the Caribbean and through Latin America. I have seen, to some degree, the beginnings of concrete utopias in indigenous societies. Mm. These are different models of leadership, okay? And yet, many of them are being supported by white institutions. And these are white institutions who don't, in South America specifically, who don't or who want to save the environment. And I was just down in the Peruvian jungle in December with an indigenous community. And, you know, it's quid pro quo. Okay, so they're being funded to have a school built so that they don't lose their mother tongue. They're called the Mayhuna. And so that they don't starve. And the agreement is you work with George Mason University and we will bring in tourism and you can maintain your indigenous way of life 
However, and this is what got exposed, the money that was coming in to provide the structure, the school, to educate the children, the babies who were not, if, if it wasn't preserved like as of last year, they, uh, Mahiti, the indigenous mother tongue, was going to become completely, was, was going to completely vanish. But here's the quid pro quo. We will fund you, we will build a school, but you must be willing to also learn English and learn about Christianity. Ah, oh, the religion and, piece. I wanted to ask you about this. Oh, I'm so enough. glad you brought that up. Because the state and religion, even though it's- Talk about so, intersectionality. Right, and, and, and that's what I, that's the big epiphany coming out of seminary for three years is that there's no separation of state in this country. And it, it, it was never intended that way. And that's exactly why we have who we have in office right now to try well, can to we talk about that? that. Like there's this, I, okay. Cause I'm Jewish, right? So I don't know. And I'm not even religious. It's a cultural thing for me, but this whole, like be a good Christian or like do the right thing by God. And like, how does that play into like race relations and, and by the way, institutions, it is an institute and, and it's divisive yet completely united. I mean, well, how, how do you I don't think know. And, and the intersectionality between, I mean, talk about a black church versus a white church, for example. I mean. So how do you think Christian evangelical teachings doctrine influences our institutions well it's just like i to be honest and i'm excuse my language i don't know another way of saying this it is a mind fuck because these the bible saying you know love all people god created us all equal like god we're all god's children do good but then that's definitely not how it's lived especially in this country and then there's also this thing where you can like sin, but then just repent and it's okay. Um, yeah. What, what, I, what I'm going to say is this, is that there's been a specific form of Christianity that has been deployed as a dominant narrative in this country to structure society. Oh, Harry says they influence legislation. Huge exactly. Conservative ideology. Yeah. Jeff Sessions. He was, he was quoting biblical passage doctrine regarding sealing off the borders down at the U.S.-Mexico border to justify completely dismantling the asylum process. He quoted biblical passage. But, Damn. But, but, but again, Euro-Christian doctrine was the foundation of our founding fathers. And it's been the dominant narrative going forward in this in country. God we trust. I mean, you know, and, and so, and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I'm going to get, I'm going to get another example. It's a very issue that's going on in the state of Israel. Okay. Mm -hmm. With the Palestinians. But I want to also touch on something else about the anti-blackness because I'm committed to this. I'm committed to keeping the conversation going as we move forward collectively about white supremacy that you have to bring into the fault anti-blackness. 
Peru is one of the most racist South American countries on the planet within Latin America. And they discriminate against the indigenous because of their dark skin. And Peru is the worst, okay? And that is anti-blackness within South America, okay? Brazil is just as bad because of the fact that historically with the transatlantic slave trade, there is a large population of descendants from the transatlantic slave trade. Anti-darkness? Anti-blackness. Anti-blackness. Anti because they're because of the, the darkness of their skin. The reason I say anti-darkness is because when you're talking about like I didn't Peruvians, say for example, I like anti-blackness. Yeah, you did say anti-blackness, but it's about the darkness of their skin, right? Within the black community in the U.S., I've talked to like, I have some friends that are a blend of different backgrounds, right? And and so, like you're not white enough, but you're also not black enough. It's the anti-black, like, but like in China, for example, there's like skin bleaching to become whiter. So it's still like it's, about being dark, like being a lighter. In Asia, it's a $60 billion uh, industry in cosmetics for skin lightening, okay? And here's the thing. In Asian communities, I'm not Asian. It's because I'm Pacific Islander and because I don't have the fair skin, okay? But but that's another conversation, all right? Um, the point anti -black is- Anti-blackness is different than anti-darkness than that. I did not say anti-darkness. I said anti-blackness anti-blackness it all white supremacy is joined at the hip consciousness wise with anti-blackness okay i i had to start my own deconstruction decolonization process of being reared in a family who intermarried to dissimilate as much as possible from any kind of blackness Okay, and I had to basically make a painful choice. I don't have much communication with my biologic family anymore because I refuse to live out that generational consciousness that has caused so much harm and trauma. It did for me. I denied my Creole background. And, the, and you know what the most painful thing for me? Where I learned beloved, beloved, beloved community is from black community. Where I learned how to actually embody true unconditional love is from the faith-based black community. And I have to say this right now for the record to all the people in the audience. White America, Latino America, Asian America need to get this. That the black community, black people are the seat of civilization and they're the seat of humanity. And we need to get that. I needed to get that. And until we elevate that into our consciousness and stop seeing someone who is darkest skinned as the other, again, 
your grandchildren, 40, 50 years from now, are going to be doing the same thing that we're doing. We're sitting here. So the overhauling is the overhauling is the reimagining. And I will say this, this is really huge. John Paul in one of his panels, he had an international panel. He said, what's really interesting in the, in the data analytics, in 1967, at the height of the civil rights movement, because he was asked, is there something different happening now? Do you think something's really different? Because the communities of color, the elders are guarded. They're not certain if it's just more of the same and they're waiting for the, they're just waiting to see when the backlash is gonna happen. And there's already been a backlash. Two African-American men in California were found hanging from a tree in the last week, okay? And amidst other women of color, black women who've gone missing, but this has been happening ongoing. So John Paula was asked, he says, look, I believe based on the analytics, this is different. He says, and I'll tell you why. In 1967, at the height of the civil rights movement, there were 200 protests nationally. Do you know how many protests there have been since this uprising occurred? Over 2,000 just in this country. And then another 3,000 globally. Something is happening. In consciousness, collectively, and individually. It's just that when I say overhaul, guess what comes with that? The long haul. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I've heard recently, and by recently, I mean the last two days, from people that I know in the Black community and also Black voices that I follow that it's kind of like what you were just talking about, like, not like an angriness like almost annoyance like okay don't like this isn't a fad this isn't a trend you know not a moment a movement like you said it's it's um it's always been it's always been a movement in the moment it's always been a movement in the moment even the moment but it should it, it, i mean it is life's work i spent i spent my whole life breathing in white supremacy and white privilege since the second i was born I can't you, just read a book and be done how, with it. So how do you think Germany reached the point of issuing reparations and establishing so many museums and, and sites of history specific to the Holocaust? How do you think they got there? Overnight? Whoa, that's a great question. And if, you know, so... I want to just, I have to address something. So you said when you were trying, when you're sharing, you you know, you're sharing a dialogue communication you had with black community and, and you qualified that you prefaced it and said, well, you know, it wasn't angry. Why did you have to qualify that as not angry? I'm sorry. I don't know what, what, when I said that. You were sharing with me just now that you were in conversation with some black community about, you know, it's not a moment, it's a movement. And as you were leading up to shit to that share, you said, you know, they were communicating, but it wasn't angry. Why do you feel you had to, you had to state that disclaimer? I don't know. And I don't remember saying that. And I feel like I know what you're like implying maybe. Yeah. 
Like I know, I feel like be angry, like feel the fire in the belly. Like I get it. But, um, but, so, even, but, but even if they were angry, so what? Yeah, I, I agree. So I like, that's why I'm like, I know why you're asking me that. If I said it, I don't, I don't doubt that I said it. And definitely like a blindness. I just need to be, think about it more. I, I'm just inviting you because it's a, it's a trope. It's a trope that's embedded in our consciousness. And you, and how I understand it, witnessing you is you're wanting to present your black community in the best possible light by saying, oh, but they weren't angry. It wasn't an angry communication. And I'm saying, okay, now this is Chris, this is Luna, okay, in the raw, authentically expressed. Who gives a fuck if they're angry? They, they're entitled to be angry. I'm entitled to be angry. The shit that I went through with this institution, the disenfranchisement I went with the I went through with the graduate program because of colorism, and I went through nothing compared to the George Floyd's, the Tamir Rice's, the Sandra Bland's, and the list goes on and on and on. But because I named and called out anti-blackness, I got the white lash on the neo-colonial plantation here in my tenure in my graduate graduate program. They put they they made certain that they were going to put me in my place. All because of two words, anti-blackness. And guess what that did? The minute they pushed back on me, I spoke it even louder and more often and inserted it every fucking opportunity I had. Because it's time. This is our time. And you own where you are. If you don't know what to do, if you don't know who you are, if you're in the movable middle, if you're the Amy Coopers who would be willing to pick up the phone when a gentleman asks you to put your dog on a leash because he wants to bird watch, and then you're gonna deploy the state to terrorize him and call on the phone the state to come arrest him in Central Park. If that's where you are, embrace it, own it, heal it, and clean it up, but be accountable. Until you can't change something unless you become aware of it. Trust me, she knows now her white privilege. You know, I was actually, we were talking earlier about, I, I don't know why I'm like hesitating saying it publicly, kindness, right? We were talking about kindness. And one of the teachers from there put up a video of the two owners of kindness speaking two or three days ago on like an Instagram live. And then there's like all these comments people like angry comments and there were nice comments too. And they replied to the nice comments, kindness. They haven't said a word to any of the ones who are like, why aren't you stepping up? And so, and I said, I'm like, y'all are being thrown a thousand bones right now. Pick one up. It's never too late. Like, and I really feel that way. Like, I think that like you said, the consciousness is up level. Like there's no way to not be aware of what's going on. I mean, 
what is that, 5,000 protests around the world? So here's my question for you, though, Jamie, specific to this example that you're sharing with me about kindness that we had a full transparency, a, a brief conversation about before this airing. When I was moving in and around the spaces of kindness 10 years ago, the dominant majority was white. And, and this is a yoga studio, by the way, a very popular chain of yoga studios in Denver, Colorado, for anyone that's okay. watching that doesn't know that. Okay, so the dominant majority was white. I, I left because I had to transcend. That's how I'll put it. So here's what my question is. Unless the demographic has shifted into a whole nother direction, and it's now predominantly represented by black indigenous people of color, why should it surprise you that only the nice things that were stated had commentary and were answered and addressed? Why should it, it surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. It's just like, okay, I guess what surprises me is like, it's not like they're not responding to the first comment or second, third, fourth, fifth. But when people are like, come on, We're like literally word for word saying, why are you doing this? Calling them out, giving them, like you said, that Amy woman, she is very aware of her privilege. Like there's no way you can't not be aware at this point. So that's when the surprise comes in. So, uh, somebody that supposedly uh, people, I should say, living in a mindful state of mind, right? Um, awokened is the, is the word, or I don't know. Woke. 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 Um, living in that, being woke even more, trying to buy all the people and still being blind to it. I mean, bleh. Yeah. It, so, so here, you know, I've been a yoga practitioner for decades. I've taken my seat as a meditator. I have a very rigorous daily discipline practice. Here's the thing. If Hatha yoga were truly the answer to overhaul the consciousness of racial injustice, it would have happened by now. Okay? Mm. Hatha yoga in this country, and this has been my critique from the beginning, has become a capitalistic doorway to exploit another culture's lineage. It became corporatist and, and, and then within, within the whole lineage of, of yoga, Hatha yoga is like the lowest level of the process of coming into consciousness. It's the, it's the fundamental rudimentary aspects, but if you're hanging out there, you can hang out there a lifetime on your mat. Right. And there's what's the, act, what's the actual action in that of like making a change outside of a mindset. Which, I, 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 that does make change, but uh, well, that's where I struggle because come on, that does got to make some sort of change, you would think. Okay, so how about this? Because I was reflecting on this last night. From a quantum field perspective, quantum physics, everything and anything that we direct our attention to influences the reality. All right? 
Well, what comes first? Thoughts or reality? They say, I love quantum physics. Okay. Okay. So maybe all of the yogis busting out their downward dogs and their basistasanas and, you know, their their, uh, handstands, you know, and mastering it and becoming adept acrobatics. All right. Maybe it brought them to this point. I'm just saying as a possibility to at least be flexible enough to hear that Black Lives Matter. It doesn't mean that it guaranteed that they're going to take action or that they're going to be willing to actually stand in solidarity. But maybe it got us, it contributed to the greater whole to get us to this point of saying, okay, yes, black lives do matter. And I'll put it on my website and I'll, you know, change my Facebook avatar page and I'll, okay, maybe that's as far as it's gonna, it's gonna get you. I, I you know, I, I'm not trying to be, present myself as an expert at it because like, it's like I said, I've, been, I've taken my seat as a meditator for three decades. I practice with some of the original East Indian masters that came out here to the US. I've always, I've always had an issue with cultural appropriation. I oh always gosh, we could talk hours about that, I am sure. I just like completely lost my train of thought. Well, you could, well because you were saying about, well, ha, has this not made a difference being committed to a mindful practice? Oh, oh. Yeah, like you were saying, everyone collectively doing the down their downward dog or laying in shavasana, whatever it is, and in quantum physics. I mean, there is no way that that doesn't have an impact on the collective. No way. Okay. But does does it have the impact that we need it to have? Does it okay. actually can mean that people take action? Not necessarily, but does it propel? Okay. Well, that are moving. Forward? I don't know. I think that groupthink is really powerful. I mean, you know, I okay. study sociology. So- so again, so from my lived experience, here's here's truth telling from my lived experience. Okay. When I was at, when I was hanging out in that community, and I was going through rough patches in my life, in that community that we're referring to right now, to contextualize this, who was there by my side? The Sam Abrams, the Bill Torreses. And one particular white woman, Mary Beth Hickey. Uh, she's still there. I know that name. Okay. Okay. Mary Beth Hickey is an elder. She's been around. She's originally from New York. Everybody else, when I was going through some painful experiences, I didn't have a sentence of solidarity as, as a woman of color. But the two people that I could go to and feel community and connection and feel a part of beloved community was Sam Abrams and Bill Torres, two men of color. Well, it's interesting because Sam's watching this and he said a couple minutes ago when we were talking about all this, that at the end of the day, it's about equity and justice, nothing more, nothing less. And you know what what it also is about? Sharing, it's about shared power, shared power. Shared power is huge, huge. I mean, I've been talking about that recently, like, okay, it's one thing to be aware and and acknowledge your privilege, 
right? Especially as a white person in this country. It is another thing to to be actively anti-racist, to be a co-conspirator means inevitably that you have to be willing to give up some of your privilege. You do. And that is the kicker. I think that's where it stops people. That's where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm exhausted after doing this for a week. I gave up some of my privilege when I named anti-blackness in my education institution. And what privilege was that? Scholarship money. And I knew it going in. I said, you know, you go public mm. with this. You, you, you call in these administrators in a public forum. When you apply for that fellowship, you know they're going to they're gonna remember. And I said, you know what? It's a risk I have to be willing to take. Because if I keep silent, I'm complicit and perpetuating. Oh, it is, it is like, I mean, talk about like wrestling with your ego. I mean, that's where meditation I think is so important actually, because you can kind of like get rid of like the ego voices, right? The ones that would keep you from being like, well, it's okay. If I make like a little bit less, I'm still fine. And yeah, like, but I don't, I, you know, honest to God, I mean, I'm, I'm an advocate of meditation. I'm an advocate of mindfulness practices because I live it and I be it. But you know, you've got communities of color that have been living in decades of trauma. This is what white America needs to understand. There is severe trauma going on in this country. And we've got two pandemics going on. We have the pandemic of COVID-19 that's nowhere even near being addressed properly. (laughs) And then we have the pandemic of racial injustice globally and on fire here in this country. So those two converging, if that's not a moment of awakening that's demanding a collective awakening, I don't know what else you need. Right. There's so much trauma. I get it. White people, I've been through so many webinars right now, healing forums with my different demographic communities. So many progressive committed white community, different socioeconomic statuses all over the country that have been participating in forums, they're traumatized as well. It's a diff. Yeah, it is because all the, the difference is though, this is like a instant, like boom, smack in the face kind of trauma. The, the trauma that we're talking about, I feel like with the black community um, is life long Trump abuse, really. But, but, but do you get also, we talked about, you said, we said Christine system or Luna system systems. Okay, medical system. Then why is it that disproportionately COVID-19 has been wiping out black, black, Latinx and indigenous communities? Because the medical infrastructure, the system is so corrupt. Oh, it's disgusting. And the prison system, I mean, they're for profit. Why is our medical system and our prison system for profit? I mean, Jesus, that's but, a whole but, other like avenue we could go but, down. But, but again, again, as far as people taking to the streets, the uprising, what's happening right now, it's the convergence of these two pandemics. And here's the good yeah. news. Here's the good news. Our Adanti Roy, amazing East Indian scholar based in Delhi, amazing. The pandemic is a portal. Yeah, it really is. I think it could be a portal to a new world. This reimagining that you're talking about. Uh, uh, yes, 
Yes, yes, yes, yes, yes, yes, yes. And it's like, just because we've been living one way doesn't mean there could be a completely new way of living. I think that's why it's so beautiful to actually realize, whoa, there are these indigenous communities, other communities around the world that are living life so differently. Maybe it could be like that. Nobody's telling us that life has to be this way except us. But, you they're know? Fight, but they're fighting for their li- livelihood, particularly down on the Amazon. Yeah, because we're coming in and trying to tell them to do it this way of life, which is a complete dystopia. So, okay, I want to be respectful of your time. We were going, I mean, there's so many other things I would love to talk to you about that we barely dug into, but I want to wrap it up with one thing that, you know, if you could shed any insight, light, advice, wisdom, whatever on this. I think that it would be a great thing to be able to give people that are really wanting to take action, make a difference, be part of this overhaul. But to Sam's question, don't know what action to take or to the point about being exhausted, have no idea how to even like get the motivation back. The burnout is real. The trauma is real. How and like, what's okay? Like, do you take a break? Like, you like, what do you do? So, So what I can offer you um, is what I offered in a healing forum that I participated in with the Agape Spiritual International Community out of L.A. with uh, Michael Bernard Beckwith last Saturday. It was a three-hour. Oh, God, it it was rigorous. And I'm a writer. And so I write every morning, and I feel that what I... What channeled through me, what came through me a few mornings ago, and what I wrote free flow is what I can offer. As far as wisdom, as far as contribution, you know, and people can accept it or reject it. It's free will. Well, I'd love to hear it if you're willing to share. So what came through that I wrote was, Sacred Revolution Uprising. This is a sacred spiritual revolution of human, of human dignity. This is our time for collective awakening. The ancestors, all our ancestors, dreamt us into this moment of freedom. Um, and that Black people must be recognized and elevated as the seat of civilization and humanity. Um, and that we need to all touch into the sacred knowing that this is our time to transmit fear and live into the future now, okay? And that there's a deep wisdom that lives in our hearts and bodies. This is, a t- this is our time for a vision of a new America. And um, the national and global heartbeat palpitates right now. And we are the moral defibrillators. Because fissures of inequality persist in every institution that's been killing the possibility of a genuine democracy. An example is surgical racism as in voter suppression as we're approaching. And you gotta vote. I know, I know, I know it's a lesser of two of you. You gotta vote because the one that's not currently occupying the White House, he's the most malleable. He's the most, 
receptive to furthering our agenda of overhauling. That's all I'm gonna say on that. Um, these um, institutions have been in, engaged in a death measure. And it's the death measure has been the intersection of racism, sexism, and classism. And these are lethal forces that have produced people like you and I and the Sams and um, others in the yoga community as wounded healers. We need to elevate out of a wounded healing perspective. And just lean into the growing edge of revisioning, reimagining. Because that's, it's like, I, I think I shared this with Sam the other day. I, um, Michael Bernard Beckwith said in his Sunday service, he says, he quoted Alice in Wonderland, the queen. <laughs> and, he, and she says, the queen says, imagine six impossible things before breakfast. That's where we are. Oh my God. What like a simple yet unbelievably, like, in, I mean, if we all did that, imagine the things that we would come up with. That's kind of a cool practice. That's a quantum, that was a quantum seeding. Also, Michael Bernard back with tomorrow with Scion um, is activating another global meditation movement of 1 billion people. Wow. It'll be, on, it'll be on Facebook Live. But again, yeah, I've been, and I've been engaging in this for the last five days, waking up in the morning. Six is kind of hard. Six is kind of hard. I've managed three impossible things before breakfast. And it keeps growing. That's the that's where we have to be in our consciousness. Okay. Do you have one? I mean, in by the way, that writing was beautiful and powerful and like honest. And thank you for sharing that. Um, oh, there was one line in there that you said I'm gonna rewatch it, and I'll send you a message, Lynn. And there was one line in there that you said that was so good. But okay, you're imagining reimagining three things every morning that don't exist. That seem impossible, whatever it is. Is there one that right now you would like to say publicly that people are watching that you would love to actually see come to fruition that you want the collective to start thinking about and imagining? Yeah, and it's 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 uh, prison abolition, decar decarceration, mm. and it's and it's happening in the country. I'm part of a movement here in Denver. I've been trained in restorative justice and. We're not, it's a nonprofit that's working with the DA's office, but it's all about a holistic approach to justice. And, and so what does that mean in simple terms? We've all been indoctrinated into a legal system of thinking that justice is retributive, that I'm going to get retaliation for how you harmed me. There's transformative justice, there's reparative justice, there's restorative justice, what this all leads to is decarceration and prison abolition. It yes. doesn't mean it doesn't mean that violent acts by actors are put out on the street. What it means is we rethink as a community how we're going to reinvent justice and co-create just approaches. So that's what, and Angela Davis spearheaded this 50 years ago when Reagan threw her into prison, stripped her of her UCLA tenured professor status as a PhD 
and was and put her on death row. Damn. Damn. I mean, I am all about that. Like, I watched 13th, of course, and then I I watched the Khalif Browder story and among reading other things. And I mean, it's just like, I also like part of the sociology I studied was criminology. And I mean, mental health, you cannot talk about it without talking about mental health. And you're talking about trauma now. I mean, I was talking and I'm sorry, I said we were wrapping up, so I will wrap up. But this doctor in California, I forget where in California, it's a big state, but I can't remember where. Anyway, he had in one month, one month, the same number of people coming in for attempted suicides in a year, a year's worth of attempted suicides in one month last month. Well, and think about this, the, 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 the law enforcement apparatus of the state are being put in the position to be social workers. And clearly they're unqualified because they're killing people who should actually be receiving mental health. Well, including themselves. You, there's a lot of trauma that you deal with. And then, mean, come on. And that's the biggest, you know, that's the, to get us into our hearts so that we have heart-mind coherence, Yes. which is a start. The trauma, I can't overemphasize the trauma that communities of color have been experiencing. Black, indigenous people of color, the trauma has reached a breaking point. Okay, I have a question about that really quickly, and then we really will wrap, wrap it up. I think there's a lot of people, at least that I know of and I'm seeing on social media, and some of my friends said this to me, what do, what do I say? Like, all of a sudden, being woken up to the trauma that's been inflicted, right? The pain of our Black brothers and sisters in this country wanting to reach out and say, I'm sorry, or like acknowledging it. But at the same time, that almost makes it worse. It's like, how would like for you personally, right? Because you can't speak for everyone else. Well, how does somebody acknowledge that wanting to show you love, but not also like bring their own guilt with that, you know, because that's something that we have to deal with on our own. But how do you also show love? You know, that's a really challenging question. And I'll tell you why, because I've been reflecting on it in my other forums, healing forums. Because what's happening, John Powell in his webinar the other day, he said, we're, we're being, I'm speaking from my own lived experience. So I'll speak it in the eye, um, based on what John Powell disseminated uh, wisdom wise. I'm being challenged in this collective experience with COVID-19 um, converging with uh, state-sanctioned terrorism, domestic terrorism and murdering of, of nonviolent um, individuals in society. And so with those two before me, I'm also having to now reorientate how to socially distance myself yet remain socially engaged mm. because if i don't i'm at an age where if i am trying to connect with community and not maintaining social distance i could run a risk of contracting covid 
And so everybody's facing this and they're navigating the new social landscape. How do I socially distance? Because I got this whole other issue going on that's threatening humanity and our, and our mortality and then and be socially engaged. So everybody's in a state of disorient. I'm in a state of disorientation, orientation, reorientation 24 seven. And that's the compassion that I'm talking about, the trauma we're all in. Because you know what, Jamie? There's no guarantee that if I quarantine and then when I go out into store and only do essential um, uh, errands, that I'm not gonna come in contact with COVID-19. I'm not gonna contract it. There's no guarantee. All I can do is take everything that I've had from my prior career in the health and wellness field, strengthen my immune system. But that's, that's overshadowing all this other stuff. And then for the communities at large, who've had so many relatives and friends in communities of color dying, either being denied access to ERs because they didn't have health insurance, or it's the studies are out there. Black people show up in hospital wards, emergency wards, and they're sent back two or three times home because there's this there's perception that they're somehow impervious to pain and, and, and suffering. I had my, my therapist, her husband was sent home twice. He finally was admitted into ER the third time he had COVID-19. He was in ICU yeah. for a week. He's black. He made it, thank God. But he, it was like, three strikes, you're out? It's a, it was a roll of the dice. This is why people were in the streets, as well as the state-sanctioned state terrorism. So back to your question, like, how do we, we have to, one other thing John Powell said, the smartest people he has learned from, and he's a wisdom elder, he's in his 70s, are the people who live into the questions and ask questions and don't try to come up with solutions or answers. Hmm. They live into the questions. I heard that recently too. What do you do? Question everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing yourself so beautifully and generously. I'm like stopping myself from responding and engaging too much because I will just keep going. Um, Sam, Sam says, I think you should interview her again so much to say not enough time. Um, but I, I, maybe like I would love to talk to you again, whether or not would, we do it in this form. I would like to bring maybe Sam into it, maybe have a three- way dialogue yeah and maybe we facilitate a discussion is there anything else that you want to say while we have the live going before i shut it off luna this is a start hmm. and i feel it was a it was a worthwhile start and hopefully it opens some doorways some window for whoever's viewing and and it's like i want to sit here and defend that but you're right. It is. This is only the start. That's it. Really. And thank you for 
being bold enough and like sticking to your truth enough to push me to my edges. I need that. That's why I'm having these conversations. Um, and it was, yeah, a reminder for me in a lot of ways of a lot of things. So thank you. Um, okay. Thank you. thank you for the opportunity. And oh. thank you, Sam, for introducing us. Yes, Sam, shout out to you. Okay, I'm going to stop the live stream. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the One World, Your Story podcast. If you enjoyed hearing this story and you wish to hear more, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube. And of course, follow us on Instagram at One World, Your Story. From all of us here at the One World, Your Story podcast, we are sending you so much joy and love. Have a wonderful rest of your day.